Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. And so if you'll join me in the 10th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, have been in the middle of a, of a series that began just a few weeks ago in the fall called People of Justice. And we've learned the meaning of this term justice, the Hebrew term mishpat, which simply means to give others what they are due. On the negative side, it means you're punishing evildoers. On the more positive side, what you're doing is you're making sure that the vulnerable and the disenfranchised are not left behind. And so over the last several weeks, we've been advocating for justice, particularly for the vulnerable in our midst. And we have quite a few vulnerable populations that we have identified. We've talked about why we are already currently serving so many of those populations here in the tri-state area. We've seen the call to justice. We've seen the call even in another part of Isaiah for the church to uh, not ignore this any longer and to the degree that we have ignored it to repent of our sins in regard for that. Uh, the reason for that is because the heart of God beats for the vulnerable, for the disenfranchised, for those who, who may not get a fair shake, who may not have adequate resources or recourse when they are taken advantage of by our system. And then, of course, last uh, the last couple of weeks, we looked more specifically at the question of what is justice. And we got that definition through the eyes of Jesus in the very first sermon that he preached in Luke chapter 4. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. And then he says that gospel applies primarily. He says, I'm going to preach it to the poor. I'm going to loosen bonds. I'm going to set captives free. I'm going to open blind eyes. In other words, the, the gospel of the kingdom is not merely spiritual. It's tangible. And tangible expressions of that coming kingdom should always be part of the fruit of any legitimate gospel presentation. And so today, here's what we're going to ask. What does that look like for people who are supposed to be the voice of Jesus in the public square? You realize that's our responsibility, don't you? Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew 16, on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. That's a, a New Testament metaphor for authority. And whatever you bind will be bound and whatever you loose will be loose. In a nutshell, Jesus is saying this, when my people confess me rightly and when they seek to serve me the way I have called them to serve me as Christ, the son of the living God, everything they say will represent me. Well, that's our job, isn't it? To be the voice of our Lord Jesus in the midst of a culture and the public square is not exempt from the voice of God, though sometimes we can admit we, we treat it that way, don't we? I think one of the reasons we do is because this is a difficult question. I'll just warn you in advance, this is going to be one of those messages that some of you are going to walk out and your, your head's going to be a little bit fuller of information and things that are just kind of troubling you mentally and intellectually. More of that than you care for is coming today. Can I just warn you of that? More also of probably just some troubled sense in your spirit is probably coming today than, than would usually come in a message like this because the prophet has some really disequilibrating things to say to us and things that are going to knock some of our ideas cuckoo around this issue of not just that we should speak to the public square, but why don't we? 
Let me tell you a couple reasons why I think that's a difficult question. First of all, is unlike ancient Israel, this is a little tougher for us because we're not Israel. So let me get a, give a, a moment here for all the air to go out of the room and you to be shocked by that statement. I'm going to go ahead and say it again. We're not Israel. I had an Old Testament professor in college who said there's only really two great civilizations in the history of humanity who have ever suffered from chosen people syndrome. One was ancient Israel and the other is the United States of America. And the only difference between the two of them is Israel's the only people who had a right to feel that way. That's not us. All right. We are not Israel. And, and so by, as a result of that, we are not theocratically governed. We never have been. We are a non-sectarian constitutional republic, which means we've got to live and have lived for these 230 some odd years alongside not only our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but alongside atheists and agnostics and Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and Hindus, the spiritual but not religious, the nuns, anything and everything lives in this country. And so in that environment of religious freedom and diversity, we have to figure out how based on, on some common baseline value system, how do we influence that multicultural, multi-faith world? Here's the, the second reason I think this is a difficult subject for us to cover. It's because even within the church, we don't always agree, do we? How many of you are married to somebody who next November is in all likelihood going to walk into the same voting booth you walk into either right before you or right after you and cancel out whatever vote you cast? You don't have to raise your hand, right? There are a lot, sometimes there are houses divided, aren't there? This is why some of you pull for Duke and others pull for the University of North Carolina. You both should be pulling for Clemson, but that's beside the point, right? Uh, there are always going to be people who are going to have different opinions. Not one, one side is not evil and the other good or vice versa. There are times when both of us want the same thing, but we have different opinions about how we're going to get there. What role should government play? Should there be a process or a program in place for this? Or should this be left to the private sector? Those are honest and sincere disagreements. Nobody's a bad guy in that disagreement. But here's the thing. It's still a disagreement, isn't it? And so how can the church as the body of Christ with all of that diversity? Because I've said repeatedly here, we don't really care who you vote for. There are other things we care about that I'll talk about later in this message, but we don't really care who you vote for. Well, how can we say that and understand that there's diversity of opinion even in front of me right now, just as there was in the nine o'clock service, and simultaneously say we should speak with the voice of God as if we are one? How in the world do you pull that off? How do you do that? Well, Part of the way this gets done is by recognizing that our culture wants us to take highly complex situations and oversimplify them. You come across that? Exhibit A, social media. Because you can deal with a highly complex issue in 280 characters, right? Anybody ought to be able to do that. We want everything to be simple. In fact, if you're in marketing uh, and you do this kind of thing for a living, you've probably heard this phrase. We want things to be seven syllables simple. Because if you can say it in seven syllables or less, people can remember it. You can embroider it on a shirt. You can put it on a coffee cup or a bumper sticker. And it just seems to solve everything, right? And so oftentimes, this is the way we think. We oversimplify so many complex things, and then when the church latches onto either one side or the other of those oversimplified arguments, some really, really terrible things happen. I remember 2016, back in the summer, it was at the height of some racial tensions in our nation, and there was 
There were some armed gunmen during that time period, and they ambushed and murdered five members of the Dallas Police Department. They tried to kill another nine, uh, but there's a, there was a surgeon at Parkland Hospital, same place where Kennedy was taken to after he was assassinated, uh, where a surgeon by the name of Brian Williams, I got a chance to meet Brian personally last year when I was in Dallas. He's coming to our area in just a few weeks for a board meeting, working with some of our One America stuff. God willing, one of these days I'll, uh, I'll have Brian... Uh, get, get the opportunity to just come up here and share his story with you. He's African-American. He lived in Dallas. He understood all the systemic injustice. And yet at the same time, he rightly was in sorrow over the fact that he could not save those other nine police officers. And in the middle of all of that, you ever notice how anytime something like that, as well as all the things that lead up to a, a violent moment like that, everybody chooses a side. Have you ever noticed that? I notice it. And what I notice in moments like that is the propensity of a nation to do something that believers in Jesus should never, ever do. And that is to presume that if I'm going to love law enforcement, I have to hate minorities. Or if I'm going to love minorities, I've got to hate law enforcement officers. That's, that's what we do. We divide the house as if somebody's going to have to carry a little bit less of the image of God than somebody else, or otherwise we won't be able to fix this. Let me tell you how I look at that. I look at that story and I think of myself, I'm a pastor to police officers. And I am pastor to many minorities. And I don't have the luxury of choosing sides. You know why? Because they're all created in God's image. They are all objects of the redemption of Jesus. I don't have that luxury. Not only do I not have that luxury, I also do not have their experience. Because number one, I have never been in a situation professionally where my daily life involved strapping on a gun and pinning on a badge and kissing my wife goodbye and wondering if I was going to come home. Now, truth be known, given the, some of the places I've been in the world, there have been times where I've updated my will before I took a trip, right? But for a police officer, this is just another day at the office, isn't it, brothers and sisters? That's all it is. I've never been there. Here's something else that I realized that as a white man, I've never experienced. I've never got up in the morning, turned on the television, and saw another body of another guy who looks like me surrounded by law enforcement and then be lectured to by the pundits that I just need to trust the system. I've never had either of those experiences. You see, if we, if we try to, if, if we don't recognize the complexity in all of this and we just oversimplify everything, we're going to find ourselves in a really, really dark place because the church in that moment is going to have her voice co-opted by one side or the other, and we're going to lose our prophetic voice. This is the one thing that Isaiah does not want us to do. Let me give you two characteristics of what I mean when I say the prophetic voice of the church. Number one, two characteristics of prophetic justice. The first is it sees and recognizes the nuance and the complexity that sin brings. I'm going to give you several examples over the next few moments of what this looks like in a society at large. We just, we, again, we want to oversimplify. This one was right, this one was wrong, and we choose sides. It's like we're second graders playing Red Rover. Genuine prophetic voice understands there's a lot of nuance and complexity in the world because we understand that sin, because of the fall and because of the level of depravity in every human being, it infiltrates everything. Here's the second characteristic. It is able to rise above the rhetoric. We don't choose sides, but what do we do? We speak back into that issue and we do it 
into the, the particular situation and we do it with the very voice of God. That's what it means to have the prophetic voice. Now, here's the, the hope I want to give you this morning, brothers and sisters, because I don't believe that Isaiah would model that for us here, nor do I believe that the rest of the scriptural witness would call us to that if the word of the Lord was not confident that we could achieve it, that we could actually see the nuance and complexity, and that we could actually speak with the very voice of God into a situation. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loose. Later on, some 1,500 years later, Martin Luther, the great reformer, would say, it is the church's responsibility standing in that long tradition of prophets and ultimately in the tradition of our Lord Jesus himself to be the mouthpiece of God. And then some 400 years after that, we get our own prophet here in the United States who was Luther's namesake, a man by the name of Martin Luther King, who would tell us the following. The church must be reminded that it is not a master or a servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It's not our job to take power. It's not our job to curry power. It's certainly not our job to want power. I hear my fellow evangelicals with whom I agree on a wide variety of things keep talking about access. I thank God John the Baptist never used such blasphemous words. This is where we're at. We are the conscience of the state. It doesn't matter who's in power. They ought to be a little bit ticked off at us. He goes on. It must be the guide and critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, and this is the darker part of this prophecy he's uttering, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. That looks a lot like, by the way, the evangelical industrial complex where we get together and we sing a bunch of innocuous songs and we preach about personal spirituality, but we never talk about the, the ultimate result of the church on society as a whole or the, the result that ought to come from us bringing tangible expressions of the kingdom of God to bear. We just stay inside our Christian bubble and fight for the same 20% of the population with all the other churches in the area. You should know by now, coming up on year four, that your lead pastor is not the least bit interested in that kind of nonsense. That's not where we need to go. The church is called to be more than that. To be more than that. In fact, we're called to speak into real world situations with a voice that is divine. You can't do that if you're co-opted by one side or the other. There's just no way you can do it. No model in Scripture is better to teach us how to do this than the prophecy of Isaiah. Let me tell you why that is. It's because this particular section, it actually begins around the early part of chapter 9. It doesn't end until around the middle part of chapter 11. And it's a, it's a larger section in which Isaiah is addressing the northern kingdom of Israel. It's a little bit uncharacteristic of him because Isaiah was in the south. By the time he comes along, the country's been divided from itself for about 200 years. All right, you've got Judah in the south with its capital of Jerusalem. You've got uh, Samaria in the north with its, with its capital, or, or, or Israel, rather, in the north with its capital of Samaria, and they're divided against each other. They're not at war with each other, but they don't exactly like each other either. And this southern prophet takes a brief moment to speak to the north. Because again, even though the kingdom has been divided, Isaiah doesn't choose sides. He sees both kingdoms as being God's people and as such. 
within the sphere of his prophetic ministry. And so this text is a, a four-stanza poem. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And it predicts a coming national disaster as that will come as a direct result of injustice. In other words, every time there's injustice in the world, you can expect the judgment of God. This is why the church, brothers and sisters, is derelict in its duties and commits treason against King Jesus when we refuse to recognize, do a little digging, do a lot of thinking, and trouble our souls to the point that we're willing to speak directly to some issues that exist in our certain society. Now, let me tell you what has neutered so much of that. It's going to make you nervous. So are you ready? Here's what neuters that whole thing. You shouldn't bring politics into the church. You ever heard that? Are you nervous yet? Here's what sometimes is meant by that, and if this is what you mean by that, then I actually agree with you. You should not act as if God is a Republican. You should not act as if God is a Democrat. You should not act as if God has a position on all these different political issues. Sometimes we're going to disagree about the best way forward. You know what? If that's what you mean, you're exactly right. But can we be honest? I don't think that's what most people mean when they say keep, say keep politics out of the church. You just make us up on your own. You're like, well, pastor, I don't. Well, if you don't, then walk out of here with a free conscience. Walk out of here with a clear conscience. Don't let, don't let what I'm saying bother you. But, you know, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the ones that squeals, the ones that got hit. I think oftentimes... Keep politics out of the church is a cover for me to be able to have one area of my life that I can cordon off from the Lordship of Jesus. That's what I think. I got an area of my life where I'm comfortable, where I think, plus, when I go into the voting booth, that's the one time I can be purely selfish. Am I meddling yet? I can just be purely selfish. See, there's a reason that the divine speaks into everything. Would it not be the chief evidence that we don't want Jesus to be Lord over this part of our lives? That when we start to engage in political speech of any, time, of any kind, it becomes the moment when we become the most selfish? It's all about me. It's all about what I want. A Christian is never supposed to have that disposition. We are to be an advocate, not for ourselves, but for other people. Bruce Ashford, my good friend and colleague at Southeastern Seminary, puts it this way. Politics for a Christian is your and mine. It is our public square way of loving our neighbor. That's what it is. Are we going to disagree at times on the best way to love our neighbor? Of course we will. But that ought to be at the forefront of who we are. That should drive our hearts. And so here's what I want you to see. The biblical model here in Isaiah for how to contend for justice in the public square, it requires three decisive actions. And the first one is this. It is our role as the people of God to collectively and boldly and without apology call out the sin of injustice. Look at how Isaiah opens this prophecy up. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. This is a solemn warning. And there's several ways that you could really translate the sentence here because of the fluidity of the Hebrew language. Those who prescribe injustice, you may have an English translation that renders it that way. Those who write grievousness, 
They, they put things into law that actually oppress and bring grievous situations into the lives of others. However it's rendered, the meaning is clear. There is a direct and solemn warning to those who would write laws that are unjust. Now, in Isaiah's day, that had a particular manifestation. It was collusion between Israel's kings and foreign kings and a desperate attempt at, at keeping their nation alive. Much of it, though, would come at the expense of the most vulnerable and the disenfranchised in Israel. But if the warning here is to those who write the laws, I think it'd be pretty easy, wouldn't it, if you understand the way our current system of government works, to know who he's talking about. It is anyone who is operating with authority in any legislative capacity. So this particular part of Isaiah's prophecy is not aimed at anyone in an executive role, a president, a governor. It's not aimed at anyone in a judicial role. It's actually aimed at the source. Those who actually write the unjust laws to begin with. In our system of government, that would be senators, that would be, regi- that would be representatives, that would be delegates at the state level, it might be county council people at the county level, I don't know who it would be, but there's a, a responsibility here through the prophet's example to send the warning to anyone who holds this capacity. And, and here's, here's why, the implication here, law and order are important. We have a lot of people in front of me right now that put on guns and badges every single day. And if an unjust law is written and executed into law, what what has to happen to you? What do you got to do? You have to enforce that, right? You don't get a choice on what you're going to enforce and and what you're not going to enforce. So you don't just put the vulnerable at risk. You put the entire system at risk when that which is placed on paper is fundamentally unjust. Law and order are important. Consistently just law and order, furthermore, are essential. We get this going all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. You have the flood narrative. God's killed everybody except Noah and his family. The, the, The ark comes landing there on Ararat. He steps off, and there's this phenomenal picture that was probably on the nursery wall of a lot of your babies when they were growing up. It's this picture of a bunch of animals and a boat and a big rainbow in the sky. What are we, what were we taught as kids that that rainbow signified? I'll never flood the earth again. Well, that's true. God did make that promise. But why did he make that promise? Because within that covenant with Noah, which was called an everlasting covenant, which means it's not bound as the Mosaic covenant was, as some other covenants in our Hebrew scriptures are, it lasts even to this day. God is saying to Noah, I'm now giving you a gift. And in that gift is the responsibility of human governance. Human governance is going to be necessary in order for you to make sure as a society, humanity, that this doesn't get this bad anymore. So when he puts this bow in the sky, he's not just saying, I'm not going to let it flood anymore. He's saying, I'm not going to let it flood anymore because I'm not going to let it get this bad anymore. And he's saying, I'm not going to let it get this bad anymore because I'm putting in place some procedures at the human level to ensure that it never again gets this bad. God believes law and order is important. Amen? He believes law and order should be consistent and it should be just. Paul would emphasize it this way. Look at the following words in in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, why is that? Why would Paul say something like that? These are the same Roman authorities that locked him up. Why would he say this? He continues. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore... All right? 
I don't know who's in front of me right now, but if you've ever been part of some kind of civil unrest and you've been tempted to throw a rock at somebody wearing a badge, you need to read these next words very carefully. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Might not even come at the hands of that person you attack. It's going to come one day from the Lord. Then he goes on. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. And you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword. We could rightly put Glock 9 millimeter in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that ideally, government is an instrument of God for the good of all mankind. You want to know why Isaiah is speaking against government authority? It's because he doesn't think it's unimportant. He doesn't think, let's just ignore this and not worry about it. He wants government to embody the same thing that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will express to us hundreds of years later. And so that should prompt a question in our minds. What happens when that which is supposed to ensure justice becomes unjust? What happens? Now, if by this point... You're one of these people who wants to oversimplify it. Well, pastor, the law is the law. If they hadn't broke the law, this wouldn't have happened. They should just obey the law. Okay, perfectly legitimate viewpoint. I would only suggest this. If that really is the way you feel, you should go to Dulles Airport tomorrow and buy a ticket to London, fly over there, find your way to Buckingham Palace, and apologize to the royal family. Do you not realize... This whole American experiment that we enjoy today was started by some dudes named Franklin and Jefferson and Madison who basically lit a dumpster fire in Philadelphia because they felt that something was unjust at the fundamental level in London. This is why we are not subjects of Her Majesty the Queen today. See, it's more complicated than you might think, right? What do you do when the government God ordained to be, to be the very kind of good that Paul talked about, what, what do you do when, when in any expression, all of a sudden it's not good anymore? Here's the, here's the thing you need to learn. Number one, no follower of Jesus is anti-government. Wow, it's quiet in here. I have touched on something. Hear me. Here's what we want. We want good government. Government, Paul said, is an instrument for good. I'm not going to disagree with Paul of becoming anti-government. And when systemic injustices become obvious because of our love for that which we want to be ideal, we must stand and call that sin out in the tradition of Isaiah. Woe to you because what you have written is unjust we got to call out the injustice among us. So now, here's the million-dollar question. How do we know what's unjust? Like, when's it going to be time for us to actually stand up as one and say something, right? So, so President Trump did this tax plan a couple years ago. Last year was the first year that it was in force. And I've talked to a lot of you because this is just, you know, this is just talk over the water cooler or over the fence with your neighbors, right? So how'd you fare 
when, when it came April 15th. And I've had some people that said, you know what? I did really good. I usually always owe a lot of money and we actually got a refund this year. It was amazing. And then I, I ran into some others of you who didn't feel so good about it. Your pastor, for one, my taxes went up. So should I get up and say, it's unjust? Why? Because, because it costs me more money. Really? That's the fundamental, dis that, that, that's what we're going to use as a baseline definition of what it means to be unjust law? Do I really have a right to call the president unjust because he initiated a tax plan? Merely because I've got to pay more? No. That tends to be our, our disposition, doesn't it? Yeah? That's all right. Look at your neighbor and go, I know it's not true for me, but it's true for you. Yeah. That tends to be it. So how do you call this out? No, I've, I've never called that out to be unjust. Am I happy about it? Well, no, because I'm normal. But is it unjust? No, it's not unjust. Not merely because it did something to me. Identify the fruit. The scriptures give us the fruit of injustice. And Isaiah more particularly here in verse 2. Look at these verse. Look at these words. To turn aside the needy from justice. Okay, my taxes went up, but you can look at me and tell I have not missed a meal. Okay? I'm not needy like that. To turn aside the needy from injustice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. You see that, you see that group of vulnerables? We've talked about that. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor. All these different groups that are, that are just by virtue of who they are and their place in society are more likely to be taken advantage of by the systems and processes than other people. And he says unjust law are laws that are written that either intentionally or unintentionally mark those people out as the target. The word, the modern word that we use in our day to describe this is systemic injustice. There's something fundamentally true about the system that causes it to be unfair to the most vulnerable. Clyde Ross was born in 1923. He was the seventh of 13 children. An African-American man born in South Mississippi. He spent his childhood watching his illiterate father be taken advantage of by Jim Crow state government in Mississippi to the point that eventually they lost their home and they were rendered to the level of sharecroppers. Clyde Ross spent most of his life trying to educate himself out of that, work his way out of that. Fast forward to, to 1961, and now at the age of 38, Clyde Ross is not living in South Mississippi anymore. He's now living in suburban Chicago. And that's a good thing, because there's no racist in the North, are there? <laughs> right. What does he run into when he tries to buy his first home in Chicago? This was the kind of mortgage. Tell me, brothers and sisters, if your bank lays these terms in front of you, if you would actually sign this mortgage, because it's the only mortgage Clyde Ross could get in the entire, um, in the entire city of Chicago. Number one, it came with predatory interest rates. And by that, I mean they were twice the mean interest rate that was charged to most other homeowners in the city of Chicago. Number two, part of the clause in this, in this agreement with the mortgage was immediate repossession of the property if he was so much as one second after midnight on the day after making his payment. Number three, he got no equity in his home until the entire loan was paid off. 
Anybody want to take that mortgage? You're like, that's ridiculous. What happened? And I know some of you are probably thinking, was he just too poor to own the home? No. Did he have a criminal record? Did he have, was he undependable? Did his job situation demonstrate he couldn't hold a job? He wasn't a faithful employee? No, none of that. Did he have unpaid student loan debt that kept him from accessing some of these problems? No, no. Let me tell you what it was. At this point in history, in the early 1960s, the Federal Housing Authority granted or denied mortgages through banks and mortgage lenders, not based upon the creditworthiness of the individual. Can I hold a steady job? Do I show good promise that I'm actually going to pay this back? They based it on where you borrowed the money, the rating of certain neighborhoods. And the FHA in the 1960s used a system of maps to do this. And if you looked at a map of, of, of suburban, inner city, and around Chicago area, you would see certain areas shaded in green. If you're wealthy enough, that's where you want to live. Those had an A rating. You knew the property would appreciate. You kind of got a sense that this is the desirable place to live. These are the words of the Federal Housing Authority itself describing those neighborhoods. Not only that they were affluent, and desirable, but, and please keep in mind, I'm using 1960s language, they lacked a single foreigner or Negro. Conversely, minority-majority areas of the city were not rated B or even C. They were rated D, and you saw them easily on a map as well because they were color-coded in red. If you're in the banking industry or the real estate business, you may or may not realize this is where the phrase redlining comes from. It's the idea that, okay, you're going to buy in a minority area and you are a minority, so we're going to subject you to some unfair business practices. And so the housing system, system in 1960s, not Mississippi, Chicago said that if you're a minority and you're going to live in a minority community, the lender takes your money, the lender can evict you for the slightest slight, the lender can keep all of the equity from your home, if you haven't paid it completely off, put you on the street, move the next minority family in, rinse and repeat. And all of this buttressed with the full support of the United States Federal Housing Authority. This is a little of what Isaiah had in mind when he described fundamentally unjust law. Because the fruit of injustice, that's what it does. It takes the vulnerable, and it treats them as if they don't matter. That's what it does. You show me anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus ever does that, where the prophets ever bless that in the Hebrew Scriptures, what are we called to? The exact opposite. We're actually going to get to this next week. Jesus gives a, a, a parable and he says to the religious leaders of his day, when you call a feast, don't invite your business partners. Don't invite those people that you scratch their back and they scratch yours. You go out in the highways and the hedges and you find the poor and you find the vulnerable and you find the blind and you find the kid in the wheelchair and you find the single mom and you find the people that everybody else has forgotten about and you bring them in. Isaiah tells us conversely here, if you find a system that's doing opposite of that, you confront it in the name of the one true and living God. Do not treat people like they don't matter. The fruit of injustice turns aside the vulnerable. Secondly, it robs the vulnerable. See, injustice doesn't just neglect the poor. 
It exploits them for profit. I talked a couple weeks ago about state lotteries. Let me tell you another way, another appearance that this might take. Buckle up, because some of you aren't going to like this. Systemic injustice, the kind that Isaiah speaks of here, that doesn't just push aside the vulnerable, but actually uses them and exploits them. Sometimes, sometimes it looks like a casino with a well-manicured lawn that is utopia-looking, but all the way around it, all the way around it, in a county seat town and say, oh, I don't know, a state like West Virginia. There's crime, there's drugs, there's prostitution, there's all kinds of, of undesirable activity, and it has done nothing but increase. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Pastor, do you not know where you live? I do. I do. When I was brought here, one of the first things the search committee asked me was, do you know the difference between Charleston and Charlestown? And I said, well, I'm sure I'm not familiar with all the differences, but I know that Charlestown is the place where there's this casino that generates all this revenue, and then they send it to Charleston where they spend it. <laughs> yes, I know where I live. I know where I live. I also know that I'm talking a lot of people to a lot of people right now, and you are state employees. Maybe you're an educator. Maybe you work for the government in some way, and you're looking at me going, Pastor, I love you, but this is insane. My salary is paid with the dollars that get generated. I know that. I'm not telling you you should quit your job. I'm not telling you to go home tonight and feel guilty. I'm not even saying the place ought to get shut down tomorrow. What I want you to understand, dear people, is that this is what happens when we compromise one step at a time, when the church refuses to confront unjust systems until we get to a point, a generation or even less later on, where like a metastasized cancer, the depravity has so wrapped itself around our community that we're now dependent on the very thing that continues to make us sick. That's what Isaiah is talking about. And it exploits the poorest among us. And some of you may be saying, well, nobody's putting a gun to their head making them buy that lottery ticket. They're not. That's true. Nobody puts a gun to their head to make them shoot heroin either. But I think we'd all agree that we'd be better off with that poison off our streets, wouldn't we? These are the kinds of things that Isaiah, I think, all these years later would bring this out. It, it, it turns aside the vulnerable. It robs the vulnerable. Thirdly, it preys on the vulnerable. Because in, Isaiah, in Isaiah's time, you had magistrates and judges that should have administered their office with deference toward those who did not have as much. Instead, they used the poor to make a name for themselves by contemptuously punishing them because there's no recourse for a poor person, right? They just go away. They go into a prison. Everybody forgets about them. And the judge looks tough on crime. Conversely, he, he curries favor with the powerful, with the wealthy. Some 2,800 years later, Pretty much looks the same, doesn't it? Looks the same. I know these are things that make us uncomfortable, but brothers, sisters, this is the truth of God just as sure as I'm standing in front of you. This is why a young black kid will go to prison for 10 years for the exact same crime committed the first time that a white kid might, from a middle-class neighborhood, might commit and only get probation. What kind of representation do you have? What kind of recourse do you have? What kind of voice do you have in the community? This stuff, the, the, the blind lady with the scales, she's such, that is such an ideal. 
for us to continue to aspire to. But you can't aspire to it unless you realize we have not arrived. We are not there. And an unjust system preys on the vulnerable. And again, this is harder than it should be in our day, largely because of our partisan blinders. Um, anybody know the name Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein? Unless you've been living under a rock, right? He's convicted of trafficking and prostitution and child porn. It, you know, the, the cover just gets pulled back almost overnight. He becomes this horrible man. Here's what I remember from all of that. I remember rolling through my social media, media feed one night, and I got a really diverse group of friends because I love all of you. I really do. But all of, all of my conservative friends were saying, well, I guess Clinton's going to have him killed. All of my liberal friends were saying, well, I guess Trump's going to have him killed. Our default is to immediately see the people we disagree with us as guilty and our own people as innocent. And you know what that does? It just ratchets up the injustice. That's all it does. You play whataboutism all day long. Well, I know they did. I know my guy did that, but they did this. You're like, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying when injustice comes, you do not speak in a way that makes people think that God is a card-carrying member of one of our god-awful, repugnant, corrupt political parties. You speak with the voice of God, and you say, I don't care who did it, it's Antichrist. This is our role. Be the voice of God. Well, I know, but you're not helping anybody. Nobody. Now, why do we do that? Because we hate the country? Because we No. No. Hatred's why we do the other thing. Is this making any sense? Hatred's why we do the other thing. I, I stood maybe seven years ago in a really conservative part of Maryland, and out of 6.1 million people, there's about 300 of those people, you know, in Maryland. And I remember saying to a church, it got really quiet, kind of like it is right now. I'm like, you know, because there was, there was someone else in the White House then, not our current incumbent. And I said, you know, if, if I observe the way so many people who call themselves followers of Christ behave on social media, it would never occur to me that Jesus expects us to show due respect and deference to the office of president. And you know what? It's still true. It's still true. We show respect when it's our guy. When it's somebody else, we, some people, man, that's all they do. And they think you're, you're not being prophetic. You're being a hater and you need a hobby. Okay. Because we got enough of that right now. You don't need to be hating on people. This comes, this warning comes not because Isaiah hates Israel. It's because he wants to see her flourish. And he knows, he knows it will never flourish as long as this injustice persists. So we've got to call out the sin. We've got to identify the fruit of this injustice. Here's the final thing we've got to do. We have to warn of the penalty of injustice. These are some somber words that conclude this fourth stanza poem. Look at verse 3. What will you do on the day of punishment? He's speaking now to those evil people who had power and influence and money and were able to leverage all of that to their own benefit. What will you do? See, this isn't a voice of hatred. You hear the tone in this? He fears for them. What will you do on that day in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? 
I know you think you got money to pay this off. I know you think you've got power and influence to leverage so that you don't ever have to pay the penalty for what you did. There's a day coming when nothing will be left for you except to crouch among the prisoners and fall among the slain. For all this anger has not turned away. You, you, you may think you got it made and you're pulling the right levers and putting money in the right pockets and the Lord's arm is not too short to reach you. It just hasn't reached you yet. Isaiah speaks of the impending fall of Jerusalem and it, uh, Jerusalem of, of Israel and of its capital Samaria at the hands of the Assyrian army. He said, there's come a day when because of all this injustice, you will have nowhere to hide. You who now count on the, the, your banking app will have no money to spend. You will be just like those that you once oppressed. This is what's coming for you. The Lord's judgment for injustice is that eventually the powerful will be made vulnerable. Now, sometimes more progressive types use passages like this to say that it's okay to hate rich people. Or that if you got power at all, that that makes you an evil person. This warning comes out of a heart of love for them. Brothers and sisters, if God hated the wealthy and the powerful, he would have sent no such warning. He would have just killed them. It's all his anyway. Dave Ramsey said it well. It's not your money, it's God's money. If he wants to take it, he'll just take it, and there'll be a big greasy spot where you used to be. He doesn't have to issue a warning. He issues a warning because he loves them. He loves them. We've got to get over this idea that your, your level of righteousness is determined by what you have or what you don't have. The more progressive vision being that if you've got something... You, you must have cheated somebody out of it. Somehow you're evil. And if you're poor, you're always righteous and you would never do anything wrong or tell a lie or steal. Uh, as well as this more conservative idea that if you're wealthy, it naturally must be because you're a hard worker and you would never cheat anybody and you've always done really well. And if you're poor, it's because you're stupid and lazy and because of me. We build these pictures of righteousness around wealth and poverty, forgetting the fact that there are rich and poor in heaven and there are rich and poor in hell. So we got to stop this. We got to stop this. What's Isaiah saying? He's saying, I love you, and I want you to turn. And if you are one of those self reliant rich, and you're in front of me right now, I'd say the same thing to you. Brother, sister, there is coming a day when you're going to step out of this world and into the next one, and I'm telling you, in less than a nanosecond, you are going to find yourself broke, naked, poor, and wholly vulnerable, standing before a God that his word says is a consuming fire. And the only hope you're going to have in that moment is whether or not there is an advocate named Jesus standing next to you. That's the only thing you've got to count on in this world or in the next one. That's essentially what Isaiah is saying. You need to avoid this. Avoid this. Because when you don't live out God's intended purpose, there are going to be consequences. It's not wrong to be rich, but God gave you that for a reason. It's not wrong to be powerful, but God gave you that for a reason. 
And the model that Isaiah provides for us here is twofold. It reveals the right motivation for why we should speak these words and do it publicly and do it as one. First of all, because we share God's heart for the vulnerable. This is why we do cold weather shelter. It's why we pack shoe boxes. It's why we've just finished a three-week coat drive. It's, it's why we do all of those things. It's why we push through even some of the objections. And I've heard some of them. You know, they're going to defecate on our lawn. They're going to pee on the wall. They're going to make a mess. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. Well, they might. They might. It hasn't been my experience that that's been the norm for that population. But yeah, they might do that. In fact, we, I'll tell you what, in the last three seasons that we've done the cold weather shelter, this will be a real motivator for some of you to sign up and get a hold of a brand new house. We've had to call police in because we've had some disturbances and we had to deal with those disturbances. And yes, you still need to sign up because when Jesus calls you into the world, this is precisely what he has in mind to walk with and suffer with and live alongside and even learn from the most vulnerable, those that everybody else in society has, has forgotten about. So we do it because we share God's heart for the vulnerable. Secondly, we do it because we respect God's order and the spheres of authority that he has set up. We had a public forum here about a year ago on racial reconciliation, and I knew that you just can't have that discussion in today's world without talking about systemic injustice. And you can't talk about systemic injustice without, to some degree, talking about law enforcement. So you know what I did? I got a bunch of our police officers together, and I got those men and women around a table at King's, fed them some really good, uh, whatever it was they were eating that day, hoagies or whatever it might be. And I said, look, here's what we're going to do. And you guys know me. I'm your pastor. You need to hear my heart in this and my desire in this. And I need to hear from you how we can allow our minority brothers and sisters to be honest because they don't feel like they can be and how simultaneously you can walk out of the room not feeling hated because we've got to have these kinds of conversations minority brothers and sisters are created in the image of god and so are those who wear badges and guns so how do we how do we have this conversation that makes it clear that we're not anti-law and order. We don't protest unjust law because we want to be lawless. We protest unjust law because our systems are taking advantage of the vulnerable. That means they're not healthy by any biblical definition. And if they persist in that, the same end will be true for us that was true for Israel in Isaiah's day. We will come undone. The Lord's judgment will eventually, will eventually reach us. So, what does this look like practically? Here's where I'm going to end. Pastor, I, I get this. I don't know what this means for me personally. Well, let me ask you. And this is where, again, we're going to have some sign-ups later in this series for you to help with cold weather shelter. For you to This isn't just because people need help. Brothers, sisters, you learn so much when you interact with and rub shoulders with people who are not like you, who aren't walking the same road that you're walking right now. All right? But let me ask you this question. How much time do you spend with the vulnerable versus the time you spend formulating opinions about them? Because your Twitter feed don't fix nothing. Rick Warren said it a long time ago. Too many places in the church have severed the hands and the feet of Jesus and the only thing left is a really big mouth. What are we doing to actually walk alongside those people? Let me ask you another question. When you speak about justice, when it's in person, whether it's on social media, whether it's in a class, we had, our small group actually had what I thought was a phenomenal conversation Thursday night. People disagreed with each other. 
volume level went up a little bit, but it was healthy and it was honest and it was respectful. People were hugging each other when it was over. The food was amazing. Right? And I'm thinking, this is the church. This is exactly, this is exactly who we ought to be. But when you speak about these things, do people really hear the voice of God? Do they sense that you have been able to rise above the, the rancor of so much of our discourse in this nation and you can actually speak with divine wisdom into a situation? Because brothers and sisters, we have had enough of Republicans and we have had enough of Democrats. We need to hear from God. And you know what? God has given His voice through His Word in the power of His Spirit to the church. So why can't we provide that? Is that what you're doing? Number three, when you walk into the voting booth, oh, now I'm meddling, aren't I? I don't care who you vote for. We are often going to come to different opinions about the way to get from A to B. As long as we agree that we're trying to get to B, okay then let's go in, let's cast our votes. Whatever it is, is whatever it's going to be, and let's move forward. Let's do it. But when you walk into that booth, here's the question I do want to ask. Do you think first of yourself, or do you think first of your neighbor? Remember, politics for a follower of Jesus? That's the public square way that you love your neighbor. What, what's going to be, when I'm voting for local people, which, by the way, a little Civics 101, just as an excursus, your local people are your most important people. Forget about the White House. It's your local people. All right? When I'm voting for those people, here's, here's what I'm asking. Who will better bring flourishing to the tri-state area? Is that backed by some philosophies that I have because I've studied some things and I've come to certain political conclusions? Yeah, it, it is. But, but at the forefront of my heart, that's the question I'm asking. And remember in all of this that at your most vulnerable, Jesus stood by you, for you, in the place of you. He sacrificed for you. And you and I now are to be his voice loudly, boldly, lovingly, and redemptively. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what I know is a, a difficult message to hear because it was a difficult message to prepare. Father, so, it is so hard sometimes to cut through the fog and the vitriol, and the polarization. And so, Lord, I pray that your people today would develop your heart for justice and would consequently speak with your voice into every situation. And I pray that Jefferson County and Berkeley County and Washington County and, Fair and Fairfax County, even in Loudoun County and Frederick County and Maryland and Frederick County and Virginia, Wherever our people tread, that they would see the difference, they would hear the difference, and that they would have hope that would last way beyond the results of this next election cycle because they can know there is a God and they can know that God's people are here and God's people want to speak with a clear voice. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, 
I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.